0: It's been fully uh, consumed by the Raptor uh, and is being digested. Poor Draymond.
1: Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is December 24th, 2019. A Merry Christmas Eve to all who celebrate. I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at Five Thirty Eight. And I'm joined in the studio by senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hello, Neil. Hi Sarah. Merry Christmas.
0: Merry Christmas to you and a happy holiday and you know, every other uh, holiday that you celebrate. I'm I'm think of the Christmas as NBA Day sure sure yeah, sure, so yeah that's, what, that's what i'm celebrating
1: yes happy boxing day to you as well oh when it when it comes yeah, yeah I, i've always I'm, liked i'm that. not
0: wearing my maple leafs hat today
1: though <laughs> oh no that's different right. hockey team yeah <laughs> i'm becoming a hockey fan
0: folks at my it's a real coaching. problem
1: for my life <laughs> is it though <laughs> well maybe
0: i think it's gonna add a lot of richness to your uh your your day-to-day experience <laughs> my
1: day-to-day sports world or <laughs> yeah. life in general both. well you know both yeah yeah sure On today's show, we decided to bring back one of our favorite segments from Hot Takedown 1.0, Stat School. We talk a lot about statistics on the show, obviously, and we think it's worthwhile every so often to have a refresher about where these stats come from, what exactly they're measuring, and why they matter. So, Neil today is going to break down basketball statistics for us.
0: So excited!
1: I know. I really am. I think this is going to be
0: really fun. Well, you've clearly not listened to uh, the previous stats we did on basketball, so <laughs> sure. you know, this will all be new to you.
1: Oh, yes. All basketball stats, really. Explain, uh, explain how points work to me. That'd be great. <laughs> all right. <laughs> but let, actually. But actually. Let's get started. In the early days of basketball, statistics obviously started with the basic metrics found in a box score. Points. Shots. Shot attempts.
0: And sometimes not even that. Not
1: even that. That was like kind of it (laughs) at first. So, Neil, what was the progression of those first indicators of player performance?
0: Well, I think the the most kind of basic level that people analyzed individual basketball or team performance at in uh, the early days, once they started actually tracking, you know, shot attempts and things like that, in minutes, they didn't have minutes in the NBA until I believe 1952. It's they they the holy grail was these per game stats the big the big headline numbers points per game rebounds per game and assists per game and that was kind of what people paid attention to early on um, and at the team level obviously if they wanted to know who the best offense was or the best defense they would look at points per game for or against although also I feel like there was just less of a sense of caring about measuring things uh, that way uh, especially at the team level um i think your one loss record was kind of what people cared about the most and then obviously what you did in the playoffs um and so yeah you you know we think about some of these big numbers i think it helped also that in the early you know late 50s early 60s There were a lot of iconic seasons uh, according to the per-game numbers. Like we think about 1962 in particular, that was kind of a banner year for individual uh, player per-game stats. Wilt Chamberlain, as part of the season that saw him score 100 points in a game, uh, he averaged more than 50 points per game for the whole season. And interestingly enough, more than 48 minutes per game in the season uh, individually, which is sort of unthinkable. We talk about load management now. Uh, imagine load uh, the, the lack of load management that you'd need to average 48.5 minutes per game, uh, but he also averaged 50.4 points per game that year. And then famously, uh, Oscar Robertson also averaged a triple-double, which no one would do. In a season until Russell Westbrook came along uh, many decades later, uh, but those were kind of the numbers that that uh, they were working with early on, and there I don't think there was really much of a sense or an attempt to try to move past that, and even try to synthesize um, the per game numbers. You know, kind of say, okay, well, this guy has this many points, but, you know, this other guy, maybe he had fewer points, but he also had more rebounds, and, you know, maybe he was more valuable. I think a lot of it was done just by reputation, by the eye test, by, you know, sports writers kind of, you know, uh, thinking about the narratives of, of what they had written and, and trying to kind of, uh, base evaluations off of that when they were doing like MVP voting and, and all league teams. Uh, and it was that way until like the late 70s or early 80s, really, for the most part. I mean, the NBA didn't even track turnovers as a metric uh, until I believe 1976. They, uh, they had tracked them in the ABA earlier than that. And interestingly, some of the some of the stats that we now sort of take for granted as being part of the box score were added only really once the ABA came into existence and the NBA was like, oh, we should probably track that too. And then <laughs> yeah. they merged and they kind of you know, felt like, well, we can't go on not tracking this uh, now that we have teams from a league where they did track this that kind of got folded into our league.
1: I was looking at a box score last night from 1946 yes, and all they had was points – shots and shot attempts yeah like field goal attempts and free throw attempts they did (laughs) break that out yeah but no rebounds oh no yeah anything yeah that was amazing yeah so what was the problem with that initial approach why did the league feel the need to evolve past that
0: well I mean I think there was maybe more of a growing desire to measure players holistically as we kind of approached the 80s. Um, obviously, sabermetrics had not really become even a thing in baseball, but Bill James in the 70s, started publishing his baseball abstracts and tried to kind of push forward, at least in the kind of amateur sphere outside the game, um, the way baseball analysis was done. Uh, And so I think that was what inspired some of the first efforts in the mid to late 80s to Try to do something similar for basketball. So there was a stat called Tindex, which was created by this guy named Dave Huron. Uh, I believe he was a sports writer um, for a newspaper. And I think that was, it's fair to say that was the first um, linear weights metric, what, what we call uh, linear weights, which is just, okay, so a point is worth a point. And then a rebound is worth some fraction of, you know, equivalent value to a point and, and an assist and, and a steal and a block and, and all of these things. And then you just kind of add them up. You subtract points for missed shots, which is also sort of, um, that was something that I don't think was much in the consciousness of, um, fans or analysts, uh, or, or sports writers before that era I was just thinking about a player's shooting percentage because, it it was all about how much volume you scored at uh, and it didn't really matter how many shots it took to get there. And, and, that's important to note that in those 1960s seasons where there were so many crazy stat lines being put up, they played a really breakneck pace and they missed a lot of shots. I mean, you know, the league average shooting percentage was much, much, much lower than back then than it is today, especially now, now in, um, hyper efficient NBA of the, of the 2010s. So I think that. This was all sort of a new attempt to mimic what they were doing in baseball and try to come up with kind of a unified points created type metric where you're like, okay, uh, this was the great insight of Bill James in baseball was realizing that you know how many runs a player scored and you know how many runs they batted in, but how many runs did they really like generate for their team? Uh, And some people tried to kind of add runs in RBI and maybe divide by two and act like that was kind of like, oh, this is how many runs the player... Classic. Yeah, created. Just divide
1: by two, everything's fine.
0: Yeah, it's just an average. Um, (laughs) But Bill James sort of took it further and was like, look, we need to know the mechanics of how runs are scored and only then... And I should mention Pete Palmer is another baseball statistician that actually really pioneered the linear way of looking at how runs are scored by saying a single is, uh, you know, adds to your expected runs by this amount and a double adds to your expected runs by this other amount. And then, you know, stringing them together in kind of a linear uh, combination, you get the number of uh, runs that the batter created. That's exactly what they tried to do with basketball stats, maybe like a decade or more later uh, as we kind of got into the late 80s uh, by just add up a bunch of stuff. Most basic version of it is a number that the NBA actually ended up using uh, at a certain point, uh, which was just They called it NBA efficiency uh, when they adopted it. But it basically was just, okay. good things are worth one and bad things are worth negative one. So it's like points plus rebounds plus assists, you know, plus all the good stuff minus missed shots, minus, you know, turnovers. And then just like that number per game, though, is like, oh, this is who who's good.
1: So did they they started that with players, not. Team-wide at first.
0: Right, yeah, for sure. I think it took a team focus, though, later as we approached the 2000s to kind of reinvent the way that we looked at players also, almost from, like, the top down uh, by saying, like, well, yeah, we know who's, like, creating these numbers, and that's great, but we don't know anything about the relationship between individuals putting up these numbers and how it actually helps their team perform when they're on the court.
1: Initially w- was it like sort of rudimentary things being added? What kinds of like metrics were thrown into that like stew of <laughs> efficiency or whatever and then maybe taken out, swapped out for something better?
0: Yeah, well, I think um for the longest time it just sort of stayed in that you know, we're adding stuff, good stuff, and subtracting bad stuff, and looking at it per game. And you know, this this was not mainstream, by the way. This was like you had to be on like a message board, you know, a bulletin board in the in the early internet, or find someone's book uh, and. I remember I – in my local library, they had a copy of a book called – I think it was like Bob Bilotti's Basketball Guide or something like that. (laughs) And this guy Bob Bilotti was doing something very similar to um, what Dave Heeran had done, which was this kind of add-up stuff. Um, But he tried to take it a little further, which I think was – The seeds of the innovations that would kind of come in the next generation was he would look at it per minute also and kind of treat that average as being equivalent to something like the batting average in in baseball and also comparing, you know, across positions, you know, so say like, well – obviously centers are probably going to score a lot higher on this than shooting guards just because they do a lot more of the stuff that shows up in the box score especially in that era you have to remember that michael jordan when he was sort of hitting his prime years it was kind of uncommon for a shooting guard to be considered the best player in basketball and and such a you know dominant Scorer, but a dominant all around player too, because centers were at the core of the way the game was played, the big man, you know Russell versus chamberlain and and all of that, and so it it was kind of an interesting insight to think to compare just like it sounds so simple now, but compare players at the same position to each other and say, you know, like, oh, maybe these averages don't mean the same thing um, for, you know, a center as they do for a point guard. Or Yeah, something
1: like that's that. funny. That seems like that would have been more intuitive. Yeah, right away. <laughs> yeah. So how, how then did we get to possessions? Like how, how are possessions quantified and think about differently now?
0: Yeah, so possessions were really, I think, the the first building block of what we now consider modern NBA or basketball in general analytics. And it was kind of a revelatory concept. I think Dean Oliver, who um, literally wrote the book on basketball analytics, he wrote a book called Basketball on Paper. um, But he had been sort of toying around with his own research throughout the 90s. um, And eventually he would go on to work for Bunch of teams, the the Denver Nuggets, Sacramento Kings, um, and and has also consulted for uh, sort of st- statistics companies outside of the NBA. Um, but uh, between him and uh, I think John Hollinger, who someone will uh, our, our listeners probably also know his name um, uh, for his work at ESPN, but then also with the Memphis Grizzlies. Now he's um, he writes with the Athletic. Um, they were sort of the the first founding fathers of this new approach, um, along with Justin Kubatko, who was the founder of BasketballReference.com. Uh, he he should be in that group, too. They sort of started looking at things through the prism of the possession because they realized that per-game stats can be very misleading. The, the unit of basketball is not necessarily 48 minutes in a game. You can have a lot more or less possessions in a game just depending on the pace that you play at.
1: Right, which makes sense. You see teams that are really good at slowing it down or that play much faster, those would obviously generate different per game scores or, you know.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, in one game it doesn't really matter that much because both teams have essentially the same number of possessions. The only differences would come, you know, if you got an extra possession at the end of a half or something like that. And at most that could happen, you know, three times or something in a game that that would create the difference if you were sitting down and kind of tracking possessions. Um, and treating... And this is an important distinction: treating an offensive rebound as the continuation of a possession rather than the beginning of a new possession. And there's debate over whether you know how to how to treat that. Um, And I think this was something that they kind of struggled with. You know, defining the possession is is something that seems so simple, also, but you have to kind of figure out, settle on this definition of well, it a possession starts when the other team relinquishes the ball to you and you get it whether it's because they scored because they turned it over uh but not it's not a new possession when uh, when a team grabs an offensive rebound it's just the same possession extended because that's the way that you get possessions to equal out to each other because it's alternating you know in every other regard possession sort of like trades one for one between teams um after you know a basket or something Right, or, or something and, like that.
1: And when you're talking about efficiency, you sort of need those possessions to be the same. Otherwise, yes. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah,
0: that and that's a really important um, point. Is that in a given game, same number of possessions? But then, when you start looking at teams across the whole league and across a whole season, you end up with very different numbers of possessions uh, for, for different teams. And so, if you just looked at points scored and allowed per game you would be missing a lot of the nuts and bolts of how efficient a team actually was. It's very possible for a team that doesn't even score the league average number of points per game to be the most efficient team in the whole league in terms of turning possessions into points uh, because they just played a slow pace. Also, it's... Very possible. And in fact, happened very often, especially you think about in the late 80s with some of those like run and gun Denver Nuggets teams and and some of those teams that uh, you could lead the league in points per game by a wide margin and have a, you know, a, a lot of points. But you also had so many possessions that you were not the most efficient team. You might not even be more than an average efficiency team uh, when when you kind of drill down to that. And so I think that was the first step toward modern analytics was distilling things down to the possession level and realizing, much like in baseball, because I think all of the stat movements in, in sports kind of took a cue at some point or another from sabermetrics in baseball, this idea that... The out is the fundamental building block of baseball. You you have twenty seven outs, nine innings times three outs, uh, and I have twenty seven outs, and it's what we do with those that matters, uh, rather than looking at like at bats or plate appearances or something like that, because those can be influenced by. Um, you know how much you score or how little you score, and you know kind of the, the teams don't have equal numbers at the end of the game, but they do have equal number of outs. Same thing with possessions in basketball.
1: Yeah, that makes that that makes a lot of sense comparing those two. That really it's what you do with each of those outs or possessions that makes makes the difference. So once the NBA had sort of switched to that like line of thinking, how did the rise of the three point shot affect all of that?
0: Yeah, well, it, yeah, it's worth saying that the three point shot, it did exist in the ABA. Um, I think since the beginning, it was one of their innovations along with the red, white and blue basketball. Uh, the, but it was not a thing in the NBA at all until the 1980s. And even in the early days of the three teams didn't really take that many of them. I mean, you would, you will now see James Harden take as many threes as like, the whole NBA. Well, I don't know if this is exactly right, but it's, 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 it's probably closer to being right than to being wrong. I don't have the number in front of me, but you know, in the early eighties that they just didn't take advantage of the three. They didn't understand the, the power of it. Um, but once people started taking more threes in concert with the idea that you're trying to distill things down to the value of a possession you started coming up with stats like effective field goal percentage instead of regular field goal percentage, which effective field goal percentage takes into account the fact that a three-pointer is worth 50% more than a two-pointer. Right. I mean, it's basic math, right, but right. at the same time, uh, it was something that they had to think of ways to kind of account for and Sort of avoid the pitfalls of stats that had been used forever, but were perhaps misleading and becoming more and more misleading over time. Uh, and so that also shows up at the team level with efficiency stats where you're not really looking at field goal percentage. Uh, eventually they came to the point of measuring teams based on offensive and defensive rating, which is another word for points scored are allowed per 100 possessions. And it doesn't matter how you score those points, whether it's on a three or a two or a free throw. Right. I mean, especially you want to get the threes and the free throws, those turn out to be the most efficient um, types of shots that you can kind of take. Um, but those all sort of came about at the same time. And I think that it was important that they did In the mid-90s, the NBA moved the three-point line closer to the basket, and that, I think, sort of touched off the the upward trajectory of threes that we're seeing now still to this day. Um, It it gave players a little bit more feeling of permission to shoot. You saw guys like George McLeod of the Mavericks in 1996 set the record for threes in a season, and it just was like shattering the previous record. Um, And, you know, some players... Took a lot of threes when it was shorter. And then when the line got moved back a couple of seasons later, they stopped. Michael Jordan is an example of that where he, he was a great mid-range shooter. And when mid-range was suddenly incorporated into the three ball, he was suddenly a good three-point shooter. Right. But then when they moved it back, it was like, oh, he not, is is actually not good at this. Um, and he's, What could have happened? <laughs> yeah. But I think there were just as many guys that – realized the freedom to shoot threes and realized that they could make them even from the distance that was moved back a little bit. And it it just sort of reshaped the way we thought about how shots should be taken in basketball. And it's been kind of off to the races since then.
1: So once they sort of figured out the team-wide rating and adjusting for pace and possessions, what did that do to player ratings Per possession,
0: The big stat that kind of came out of that era in the late 90s, early 2000s was the PER, the player efficiency rating, which I'm sure everyone has seen. It was a staple at uh, ESPN and basketball reference and places like that. That stat is essentially a, a souped up version of the tendex or the you know, NBA efficiency where there were more attempts by – I should say it was created by John Hollinger um, – attempts to quantify the possession value, you know the the, um, the points per possession value of the various actions on the court uh, and kind of debit away the possessions used by by a player um, and then scale it on a per, put it on a per minute basis. So it's not beholden to the number of minutes the coach decides to play you. And then also scale it to some kind of league average where you can kind of interpret it. A 15 is average. 20 is a good season. It's a little like points per game the scale. the LeBron will have like 30. Uh, Giannis, I think, uh, um, was up there. He may have set the all-time record last year. I don't remember off the top of my head, but he was close. Um, uh, so that... Was sort of a, a big step forward because it was this idea of minutes, you know, played should also be factored in for players, uh, and it's all pace adjusted, uh, so you're not, you know, over crediting players that play in, in faster systems and have more chances to put up um, numbers, and it's sort of all kind of unified into this one number. So at that point. That that stat, I think, really took off and caught fire when um, people first started paying attention to analytics in kind of the wider, more mainstream uh, press and and so forth. And that was followed very shortly by a stat called uh, adjusted plus minus, which is another one that is very it's very different, but it's also very fundamentally built around the idea of possessions. Now, adjusted plus minus is a fancy regression model, basically, that looks at every stint of 10 players on the court uh, in every game and looks at the scoring differential between the two teams with that set of 10 players, five on each side during that time. And then it it does that for all possible stints of every game across the whole season or ideally multiple seasons and tries to find it, – it assigns every player a rating that is sort of the best fit to explain the scoring differentials in all of those stints. So – and it's additive. So, you know, if I played with you and we won by 20 – Naturally. Which makes sense. And then I played with Jeff – He's not here, and we lost by 10. Sure. Then you would look really good in this stat because it would try to suss out, okay, well, what was different and what was the same, and then figure out kind of the natural ratings for each player. Sure. Um, And this was, I think, a radical step in a very different direction than stats had been heading um, before that because those were all kind of built from the bottom up with player. You know Box score numbers and trying to derive the value of each box score action and uh, figure out who's good from that. This was saying we don't know what the players are actually doing during these stints. We don't even care what the players are doing during these stints. All that we care about is how the team does with this player on the court. And how the team does with this player not on the court but with the same other players on the court and trying to kind of figure out this with or without you effect uh, of of a player. And that was all the rage, I think, when that first came out. Um, I believe it was invented by uh, folks that worked for the Dallas Mavericks. So very early in Mark Cuban's tenure as owner there – He got Jeff Sagarin and Wayne Winston, who are these two like statistical professors, uh, to build this model for him. And then a guy named Dan Rosenbaum, who was a economist, um, uh, he sort of was on the outside of this, but he read a news story describing this system in sort of – some level of detail, and he was like, oh, I can reverse engineer this, and he did, and he made what came to be called adjusted plus-minus. And so then once these two sort of strains of stats existed, the NBA community has kind of spent ever since trying to unify the two. And so if you see real plus-minus at ESPN, real plus-minus is an attempt to basically combine the implied value of a player from their box score stats and the implied value of a player from their on-versus-off-court adjusted plus-minus and mix them together in the proper weights and quantities to come up with kind of a holistic overall player metric. And in a little bit of ways, that's sort of what we do with our Raptor metric, uh, which we introduced and and listeners to the show will remember Nate Silver's appearance on our podcast. many, many, Multiple podcasts talking about Raptor.
1: (laughs) Right. Um, Hopefully uh, listeners also caught the video of uh, Nate in a Raptor, the many videos (laughs) of Nate, Wearing a dinosaur many Yeah, costume. many videos
0: he probably regrets. Yeah. <laughs> Here, here's <laughs>
1: hoping. <laughs> Raptor is powered by player tracking data. What insights do we get from that data that we didn't have before?
0: I think the biggest insights that we get out of player tracking data and adding it to something like Raptor come on defense. So when you're looking at offense, you can – explain a lot of what drives a team's performance from even just the box score stats, to be honest. I mean, when you add in something like the the on versus off um, plus minus, it does a really good job of, of kind of sussing out what a player has done on offense to make his team better while he's on the court. The same can't really be said about defense because there's so much that Not only do we not understand how it works, we're not even measuring some of the relevant things or we weren't for the longest time measuring some relevant things about it. So the thing that I thought was interesting when we created Raptor was that we used all of the the things that you can look at on defense that weren't available in the box score. So, for instance, shot defense, the Draymond metric. Right. I don't, do we still call it Draymond? I yeah. don't even oh, know. Yeah, yeah it's, totally. it's baked into <laughs> Raptor now. It's been fully uh, consumed by the Raptor uh, and is being digested. Um, but Draymond – Poor Draymond. Uh, yeah, that's a <laughs> yeah. bummer. Yeah. a very graphic imagery <laughs> on that. Uh, that. That was the um, that was a deleted scene from Jurassic Park.
1: Oh, yeah, Draymond.
0: Um, yeah. Although I guess you could make a metaphor off of that from the finals last year. Anyway, <laughs> I'm digressing. So Draymond is trying to kind of figure out, okay, how do you suppress an opponent's shooting percentage when you are sort of the defender of record, basically, and adjusting for – you know, what type of shot it is, but especially the distance of the shot, the difficulty of the shot. And that's something that was not in the box score at all. Um, You could try to string together sort of like, okay, well, we know that this player was... You know, used as a point guard for this team, and then this other player, who's one of the ten on the court during the stint, is uh, this other team's point guard. So they probably were guarding each other. So we can kind of assign the the statistic offensive statistics of one to the defensive statistics of the other one, and kind of you know cross it up that way. It, uh, but you would run into cross matching, and you just had no way of knowing the inherent difficulty or ease of the shots that the player was um, you know taking Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's kind of the essence of playing defense in the NBA is you know there's a visible aspect of it which Draymond does you know kind of measure which is once you take a shot of a given quality how do you suppress the odds of it going in but then there's also this invisible quality of ideally you would want them just to not Take shots from, you know, uh, right. or, you know, when they have to take a shot, because they have to eventually take a shot, uh, or I mean, it could be a shot clock violation every time, I guess. <laughs> um, you want them to take it from really low value spots on the court. Right. So these are things that we can begin to measure, uh, using the player tracking and, and some of the defensive things. We still have to use proxies though. We're using, you know, distance traveled by perimeter defenders for defensive raptor because we don't really have a better way of measuring kind of defensive activity on ball defense, that kind of thing. Uh, or, you know, following Reggie Miller or Rip Hamilton, maybe I should use a, a less dated reference, uh, as they sort of weave through this zigzag of, of screens, you know, and staying with them, trying to kind of measure all of that uh, is the area where the player tracking gives a lot more value, you know, we can explain and predict a lot more of defense with the addition of these new metrics than we could in the past. And it's getting sort of closer and closer uh, to the same level. It's not there yet uh, as on offense, Uh, offense, the change of adding player tracking, you know, there's some things you can add, like, you know, amount of time of possession player holds the ball without doing anything for it. It reduces the value of a possession. Carmelo Anthony, famously (laughs) uh, a practitioner of that. So there are some improvements you can make, but there are a lot more around the margins where on defense, you know, it's not a finished product by any means, but it's kind of getting, it's making more strides by adding some of this stuff. And the NBA uh, folks that we talked to there uh, are working on even better ways of kind of harnessing this this camera tracking data about player positioning and the the specific gravity of players on offense, but then also how players on defense sort of disrupt passing angles and driving angles and kind of playing with the geometry. I think a lot of it does have to do with like the fundamental value of the geometry of the court and quantifying that, which is why it's so hard.
1: Right. Well, right. We've never been able to do that because like if you're a defender – and you're clogging a passing lane, but you, the guy you're defending is over there, but you're disrupting someone else's man. Like, you don't get credit for that no, literally anywhere. But their
0: defender gets credit. It's right. almost like giving credit to the wrong person, which right. I think is a real risk in in doing some of this. And maybe one of the things that you kind of, as you dig deeper, you're like at the base level, like PER or something, you're not even trying to quantify defense. Right. I mean, you're really putting in like steals, blocks, defensive rebounds. Sure. And that's it. So there's almost like more safety there. You can kind of just say like caveat it heavily, like eh, this is mostly an offensive stat. But then as you move further down the line and you start adding more bells and whistles, you actually kind of run the risk of when you include something that is either an imperfect measurement, it's a proxy, it's something like that. You're actually kind of, even if it works for the whole league uh, in general, you will probably run into some edge cases where a guy is just really good at this proxy, but he's not actually good at the thing that you're hoping the proxy measures. And so you you make it better in the holistic sense, you know, globally across the, the whole league. But there may be players that you've actually sort of by adding more data. Paradoxically, you've actually made their evaluation worse.
1: For instance, when a team allows one player to get all the defensive rebounds.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't imagine which team that was recently. <laughs> to help
1: that player get a million triple doubles in a season. <laughs> yeah,
0: and the Russell Westbrook example is a really Wait, good. Ru-
1: I wasn't talking about. Oh, Rose I'm Satter, sorry, you
0: mean? were talking about someone different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's a great example of you know, come you come up with a stat, and uh, along at the same time as adjusted plus minus, uh, there's a stat at Basketball Reference called Box Plus Minus, created by a guy named Daniel Myers, um, and he. Basically, tried to kind of say what we say we don't know what a player's plus-minus data is from you know their on versus off court uh, or those like million stints uh, and the the regression coming out of that. But say we do have their box score data, what would we predict their their uh, plus-minus data to be based on their box score data? And that's a that's a valuable insight. That's sort of the basis for half of real plus minus. Is kind of the the part that you're merging in with the actual plus minus data. Is this sort of estimated plus minus based on you know players that have a lot of assists uh, tend to be really valuable in uh, plus minus metrics and and kind of trying to figure out those relationships. But all of that is by necessity done off of data that is in a specific sample over a specific uh, period of time and you've built this model off of this. And so – you, you kind of check it and, and see how well it, it does, but you can't really predict things out of sample, uh, very easily. I mean, you could split the data, build a model off like half the data, look at how it does, uh, in the other half. There are like ways of doing it, but you're still sort of stuck in the era in which you have the data for and under the conditions in which you have the data and, and kind of we're building the model off of. So you look at it and it's like, well, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Chris Paul, you know, these are kind of the usual suspects show up as the best seasons. This all checks out. This makes sense. It does a really good job of, you know, better job than PER or some of the other box score stats of predicting how a team will do, you know, in subsequent seasons. If they get a bunch of guys who are good at a given stat, which is a nice test um, for how good a stat is, is... If you get guys that are good at this uh, and your stat is good, then it better be able to tell me that the team is going to be good next year or or maybe it's not as good as you think the stat is. Um, but the problem is seasons get played after your model is built <laughs> and somebody like Westbrook comes along and in BPM, Westbrook uh, in the old BPM had sort of like some of the best or the best seasons in since the ABA merger, uh, according to um, Box Plus Minus, And it was because he sort of checked off all the boxes that uh, were being highly valued in this regression. But it was sort of an, uh, an unintended consequence of, you know, it wasn't describing as much his true value. He was good those seasons. He's kind of fallen off uh, a little bit since then. Um, but I don't think anyone... Uh, once the fancy averaging a triple-double thing kind of wears off, I don't think you would look at those seasons and consider them to be on the same level as like LeBron's best season, mm-hmm. Michael Jordan's best seasons. Uh, But that's sort of the point is you can kind of – Build a model under certain circumstances and feel pretty good about it, but you don't know what will come along afterward and kind of cause you to have to rethink things. And something like that will happen for Raptor, you know? Mm. Yeah. I mean, we'll have to make a change to it to address some kind of shortcoming, which either is apparent now, it's like, well, we don't have enough data, especially on defense. Give us more data. Um, But there will be things that are not apparent, but will be made apparent through exactly the same thing with like your Russell Westbrook type cases. Yeah, the edge cases.
1: So I mean, Raptor was developed really because of the lack of defensive evaluation. I mean, that's kind of where... And player
0: tracking in general in some of the public stats.
1: Right. So what are we still missing that we know we're missing?
0: Well, I think, yeah, the big thing is are these measures of kind of like gravity, whether it's on offense. And, you know, I think we have Steph Curry rated really highly. Um, so, you know, I think it's picking up on some of the stuff uh, like that. But I mean, he's, he's famous for sort of the way in which... His shooting ability in the way that he expands the amount of guardable space in the half court, uh, almost out to the half court line uh, (laughs) practically, Um, sort of warps the way that teams play defense on his four teammates and makes things easier for them in ways that aren't necessarily able to be quantified fully without some kind of measure of, well, this is how much – uh, you know much more likely uh Draymond's shot was of going in based on the defender positioning, which was altered by Curry, them having to guard Curry, I guess or you know just pay attention to him
1: well we've we've always had trouble assessing Clay Thompson and what yeah. how good he is and you know in and of himself, and we can't it's hard to do that without knowing. What stuff is doing for him too and, yeah. and defense too is also oh yeah that too. i
0: mean yeah i think defense the the inverse of that on defense and figuring out like i don't know if gravity is the right term uh, anti-gravity yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a, but it's like defensively trying to um sort of put a number on like you said earlier the the cases where the player is not actually being recorded as the defender of note in like a concrete way Mm -hmm. on a possession, but they do things that demonstrably reduce the value of the opponent's possession. You know, there's a lot of ways in which some kind of gravity metric for both offense and defense would really improve. And what's really funny is that, you know, one of the things that we found when we were looking at Raptor is the more stuff from like player tracking that you pour into the metric, the less reliant you have to be on that top down plus minus metric. So uh, there will probably be some diminishing returns where like you do need that in some way, shape or form to be able to, you know, catch the, the little things that are just completely unquantifiable uh, in at a granular level. But I think it is telling also that when you add player tracking, you need less plus minus. uh, And and, um, there will be some – it's almost like you can measure the progress that you're making uh, when more of the bottom-up approach starts to eat into the weight that you're putting on the top-down approach. Because the top-down approach was always sort of an imperfect stopgap way of kind of figuring out a player's all-around value – in the absence of meaningful sort of counting stats for them personally. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that the better the individual stats, the less you really need that um, that top-down number to kind of effectively tell you how valuable a player is.
1: Well, so let's take kind of a step back a little bit and look at the big picture of basketball analytics. Was there a tipping point when analytics went from you know reflecting what was happening on the court or trying – to do its best to reflect what's ha- what was happening on the court to actively influencing what was happening on the court
0: yeah i think it came around when hollinger left espn joined the grizzlies um like i said dean oliver had sort of just made the move himself to uh to join a front office and really around the late 2000s maybe early 2010s there was this cascade of uh, this wave of for lack of a better term, they were previously sort of amateur analysts or you know uh, journalist types that had been doing this you know outside the league, and they suddenly were inside the league and I should say I was one of those people I worked for the Atlanta Hawks uh, with Dan Rosenbaum uh, for a few years and once the influence of analytics made its way into actual front offices and had sway with actual coaching staffs, I think you saw very rapidly a lot of the insights that people had been kind of finding in the numbers actually make their way into you know strategy on the court in games.
1: I mean, I think a lot of times people talk about how analytics is ruining the game, but like, oh, hi, I have an insight into this. I'm going to change my behavior because of that. That's like growth, right? That's good. Well, it's Usually. certainly a
0: Pandora's box that can't be closed. Right. You know, once you know, and maybe it should have been obvious all along that like mid-range shots which go in roughly the same amount as a three-pointer but are worth only 2 points right. that that you should probably reduce those and and maybe go for the more high value areas of the court or types of shots. You know, that that's just baked into the logic of the game. Like uh, you know Dr. James Naismith created this beautiful game <laughs> that sort of has these value judgments baked into it, but no one had fully explored the the implications of why things are the way they are and what are the you know consequences and how should we play dictated by the the way the court is. I mean it sounds again it sounds so rudimentary to kind of think about but it was something that I think it took the numbers to kind of truly unlock in people's thinking.
1: It real, that really is amazing. It's not like it was a secret that three-point shots were worth more. It's right there in the name of the shot. Yeah. It's it's three points. That's <laughs> but we, more. But we can blame
0: you know I I don't think we can blame the older coaches necessarily, you know, too much for it because Again, the players were not necessarily comfortable or good at shooting that. You know, it took – it was this iterative process where – You as a kid or whatever, see more players taking threes, making threes, then you practice it and you become really good at it. Then you make the NBA. You take a lot of threes or Reggie Miller or whatever. Uh, And then, you know, a young Steph Curry watches that and is like, you know, Oh, well, maybe I can actually step out, you know, a few more feet and, and make myself even less guardable uh, and make it with. Some regularity. Um, So I think that it is this sort of iterative process, but you need the analytics to kind of give permission to break from the norm as much as anything because people, you know, coaches respond to. Evidence that's being put in front of them, especially the kind of coaches that sort of stuck around through this era of upheaval in the NBA. I mean, the owners also, you know, had a lot of buy in. You think about Mark Cuban, he's very open minded about, you know, trying different approaches. He, he came from a different generation of owners that I think we're seeing, you know, be more receptive to, you know, a lot of stuff comes Ported over from maybe their experience in like finance or something like that, where we've also seen the rise of quantification of things, you know, for some people's good, but I think, you know, society at large, you could, uh, you know, question whether it has been a good thing. And maybe we're reaching that point a little bit with, you know, sports and, and specifically with the NBA, where... Uh, again, we we talked to um, our friend Kirk Goldsberry when his book came out about this idea that the aesthetics of the game are being changed very dramatically by the insights of analytics. And whose job is it to police how the sport looks? I mean, should it be on the teams to do something suboptimal because it looks cooler to uh, you know, or it's more entertaining of a product? No, I mean, I don't think anyone would argue that. So I think it's incumbent on the league to kind of f- figure out what priorities they want to take in the way the game is played and then incentivize those things because right now it's all about incentives the incentives are against taking mid-range shots because of the math of mid-range shots
1: I do think it's sort of interesting that we that we look at like the rockets as being as playing an ugly kind of game but like ugly why what is there's nothing inherently beautiful or ugly In a style of basketball, it's what you like or are used to, really. I mean, there's a lot of ugly basketball played in the 1980s, and no one can tell me differently.
0: Completely. And yeah, especially, you know, like Pat Riley and the Miami Heat. Well, right.
1: And just like the clobbering of any player who got into the the lane. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you
0: know, some of the rule changes and some of the things that the league has done that I think have coincided with. A team like the Rockets being able to emerge, um, like you know, cutting down on hand checking. Somebody like James Harden would not really be able to consume, you know, forty plus percent of the team's possessions when he's on the court, and and kind of decide the destiny of the team quite as often, uh, and be as efficient as he is in an earlier era where they allowed hand checking and where they allowed like you said you know players that drive to just get completely clobbered so i don't know i mean the people consider the rockets style ugly because you know it does try to game the officiating sure. and draw fouls because fouls are incredibly valuable right Drawing a foul is pretty much the most efficient thing you could do in basketball. And then the other thing is because they shoot so many threes and because threes go in less inherently than, than twos, there's a lot more missed shots. You know, you're seeing guys miss a lot more shots. Now the shots that get made, like the, you know, the hardened step backs and all of that are Really impressive, right? you know, but I think maybe the purists are denouncing that. But it is, you know, it, it's preferential also, you know, on the part of what people like yeah. out of their basketball. There's probably kids grow up watching the Rockets that don't see any.
1: No, who are like step back they're threes. They're like, this is basketball. Leaning into a foul. Amazing. Beautiful. Of
0: course you're going to What a gorgeous that. shot, yeah. It's a four-point play. <laughs>
1: yeah. So is the problem partially maybe... Diversity in playing styles that so many more teams are doing that that you're you know you don't have the variety of offenses that you may be used to see.
0: Yeah, that's probably a big part of it. I mean, I don't think it's even like happened fully yet. Uh, you, you do see some teams kind of. Out rocketing the rockets in some right, ways, yeah. you the know. The, talk did about yeah, yeah, the Mori ball ratio, which is the percentage of your shots that you either take in the restricted area right under the basket or from three. The yeah, I think the Bucks actually led the league in that number last year. Giannis, of course, is like a one man you know paint destroying yeah. machine, but they surrounded him with nothing but shooters, right? And, and no just spread really, the floor. No
1: one really complained about them that much. The ire seems to be reserved for the Rockets and I don't know if that's because of Harden and you know the, who he is or or the you know the flopping I don't I don't I don't remember you know Pat Connington on the Bucks really no one's paying attention if he's flopping or not yeah I've, um,
0: we, we haven't seen that many angry tweets at Pat Connington right now <laughs> maybe give it give it some time
1: yeah maybe here well I we think can Harden start a is just
0: better at it than everyone else right, also I right. mean there was a time and the the league this is maybe instructive. The league had to step in and clarify how they were calling these things. But there was a time when James Harden drew more three-point shooting fouls than, like, personally than any other team in the entire league. Like he himself easily blew away uh, the the next best team, uh, you know, much less the the Rockets themselves as as a collective uh, in this stat, and they. Changed some of the ways in which they awarded th- you know they clarified um, the the way in which a three point shooting foul um, should be called, and he drew fewer of them mm-hmm. the next year I mean he still was like easily led the league in the number, but it was less of an outlier and I think that goes back to the idea that the league is ultimately the group that sort of sets the incentives for the game, and they have to make choices about. Now that teams have kind of figured out some of the most optimal ways to play, you have to kind of decide as the NBA how much of a radical change you want to make to the, the rules and the dimensions of the game to incentivize something different. If you think that the, the way things are trending is bad, maybe don't, you know, I mean, the NBA is pretty popular right now. And, you know, I think you could look at it and be like, there's not that much wrong with the game. It's just different, but people seem to like it. I think that's a reasonable stance, too. But then, you know, it is this it, if you do want to make a change, it becomes the trade off between how beholden are we to the tradition that makes basketball basketball, but also, you know, modernizing things to account for the fact that they've kind of figured out the 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 tricks of the trade, right. you know, the kind of underlying math of the game in a way that can never be put back into the box.
1: Totally. It, it's sort of the analytics debate. It's sort. It's sort of the perfect um, example of the observer's effect. Like yeah. to observe something is to change it. And that's just life. That's how it works. But I think as teams and players... You know the the obvious like threes are worth more than twos. That's 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 a fact. Now we get that. But there are lots of other smaller, less obvious things where players are finding, you know, little efficiencies or, um, you know, missing things in the rules, like uh, like leaning into shots or whatever. And there will always be things like that where players are like, you know, they're trying to find they're trying to find an edge and. And then the lead, it's up to the league to say, okay, well, that's fine. And that's going to be a part of the game going forward. Or, oh, we don't want that. We'll adjust.
0: And that's the story of Harden. You know, yeah. every offseason, he... You know, there's a report that he's like come up with some new move, and everybody on Reddit and Twitter kind of rolls their eyes and is like, "Oh, good, here comes another travel that he's, yeah. you know, kind of. Uh, I guess technically, he's he's poured he he's like a lawyer going over the you know the the legal code. Right. He's like poured over the rules of basketball and found some other weird loophole that will allow him to either draw a foul travel. Or you know, otherwise, kind of do something that makes everyone mad,
1: which I love. But that's basketball. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> I mean,
0: you know, that's progressing things forward. Like you think about, we we give a lot of credit to coaches, maybe not as much in basketball, um, but think about like in football. You know, Bill Walsh and the and the West Coast offense, and realizing, hey, passes, short passes are more efficient than runs, and we can kind of replace the the run with the pass. You know, that was an insight that is legal, but people weren't thinking to do, you know, spread the field, uh, horizontally instead of vertically. Uh, And, and these guys become. You know, legends. Right. Uh, but but is it just because they're coaches, and we have this idea of coaches as being the only ones that are allowed to kind of innovate, I and think, players aren't necessarily allowed to to do the same thing?
1: I think we'll think of Harden as a legend. I mean, I already we do. Well, But sure. I think you know, in hindsight, hindsight is always it always matters. Right? Yeah, I
0: mean. and and that will. I mean. I'm really, I can't wait to see what Harden's legacy will be when it's all said and done uh, and how history will assess him. I mean, I think for something like the Hall of Fame, it's like obvious, you know, he's he probably would be there if he retired today, you know. Um, But just in the pantheon of the game itself and the way that things have, have changed, I mean, you you would put him for the reasons that we're talking about the sort of hunting for efficiency in the same group on the Mount Rushmore of you know guys who have changed the game since the start of the analytics area era along with LeBron you know for and and Kevin Durant for like changing the way players behave in terms of choosing teams and things like that so it's an era of upheaval in the NBA um, and I think we can kind of point to analytics as maybe the biggest reason why
1: That will do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. Be sure to review and rate the show. It helps other people discover the program. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. On behalf of Neil and myself, thanks for listening.
0: Talk to you next time.